everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. everyone. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. We have a wonderful show for you today. We are going to be talking to Miko Peled as well as Yimna Patel. They're both going to be talking to us about Israel-Palestine. They're both wonderful guests. I've had them on the show before. I'm especially excited that Yimna is in the States right now. She's usually based in Bethlehem, but she's in the States. And the reason I'm excited about that is because that means we get to do a live show That's not in the middle of the night, which is what it would be if she were in Bethlehem. So we're taking advantage of the fact that she's in the States to have her on. Before we bring on our guests, our esteemed guests, let me just make some announcements, which is that, of course, we invite you to like this stream. Please subscribe. If you want to comment, you got to subscribe. And that's a way to make sure that people in the chat are nice. And you want to subscribe because you don't want to miss any of these streams or any of these clips that we put out. And we passed 90,000 subscribers. So thank you so much, everyone who made that happen. You helped make that happen. Really appreciate it. Also, become YouTube members. You get chats and emojis, and then your comments are highlighted. Another thing you can do is support the show at Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For $1 a month, you get to make this show happen. That's $12 a year. That's like two drinks or one drink, depending on where you get your drinks, or three. If you do it at $5 a month, you get extended interviews and bonus interviews. So we're going to have an interview with Richard Wolf coming up soon, an interview with Michael Hudson. You have some recent interviews with Christian Parenti, some stuff with Roger Waters. So really encourage you all to do that. Before we bring on our guests and start that part of the show, I want to do a little segment called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Why not? I want to bring in some good news, some bad news, and some ugly news. But let's do it in reverse order. So it's ugly, bad, and good. So that way we get to end on a positive note. So for ugly, let's take a look at Fox News' Jesse Waters and hear what he had to say about Bernard Sanders. If you work hard in America, you can do anything. You can own a company, you can become a millionaire, even a billionaire. We call it the American dream. But you see, certain people, they're going to tell you, you're only allowed to make this much money. And that guy's Bernie Sanders. For years, Bernie's wanted to tax the rich, but he'd never really tell us exactly how much he wants to take. But for the first time ever, Bernie was completely honest. Listen. Sir, you're saying that Billionaires should not exist. So you're, are you basically saying that once you get to $999 million, yeah. that the government should confiscate all the rest? I'm saying that we should go back to a very progressive tax policy like what we had under Dwight D. Eisenhower. Which would mean that, that after over a yeah. billion dollars, basically yeah. it all goes to the government. I, you may disagree with me. But I'm I just asking. Love, fine. Yeah, I think people can make it on nine hundred. You know, $99 million. I think that they can survive just just fine. <laughs> so let me get this straight. Bernie wants to take every dollar over a billion out of the bank account and give it to the government. The same government that lost $80 billion of COVID relief money. By the way, Brad, why don't you come in? Because I have a feeling you're going to have some stuff to say about this clip. Because I know you're a huge Jesse Waters fan, right? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I have my Waters foam big finger right here. I have a Waters water bottle. They should make that. I hope that show makes it. They should, yeah. Right? And is $30 trillion in debt. What could go wrong? But here's the thing. The billionaires just don't sit on the money and look at it. They spend it. They invest it. They donate it. Musk just donated $55 bucks to a hospital two years ago. I like the way he goes. He just donated that to a hospital two years ago. Yeah. Let me also add that whatever amount, 100 million or whatever they donated, I don't know about you, Katie, but in my personal opinion, charity, particularly in this country, being a wealthy country, it should not be a thing. It shouldn't, you know, 
hospitals succeeding or schools and whatnot should not be based on the whims of whether or not this like apartheid man baby feels generous or not. But then also, and I'm sorry that I don't have the figure right in front of me, but I'm sure that everyone is probably familiar with it, that it's been even people I think was like Robert Reich have like tweeted about this, that over the past several decades, people like that or people like, you know, the billionaire class Right there, he cited like $200 million in charity that they gave, not mentioning that's a tax write-off for them. But over the past couple of decades, they have taken something like, what, $50 trillion extracted from the poor and working class them. So, yeah. Upward transfers of wealth, right? Right. And he's trying to get us to Mars. Buffett given over $45 billion to charity over his lifetime. Billion. Do you think yeah. Also, he's upset that his secretary gets taxed more than he does. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, uh, Katie. I'm not a math doctor. Is forty billion more or less than fifty trillion? I think it's. I'm not the best at math. I'm more of a verbal person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think it's uh, less. Yeah, I, I think so too. And also, I'm pretty sure the guy that Waters is exalting right now really doesn't like unions. And pretty sure that he had some sort of a hand in all of the recent derailment, derailment, all of that carnage going on. Yeah. So he's just carrying water and trying to rehabilitate. Waters. (laughs) He's carrying waters for these people trying to rehabilitate the images and trying to make what Senator Sanders is saying, you know, kooky or whatever. And um it's just, it's just bullshit. Use that money for charity or we should give it to Bernie in the government. Unbelievable. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's a crazy idea. No way this is going to happen. But Biden's president. And if you pay attention, he does what Bernie tells him to do. Bernie wanted student loan forgiveness. Biden did it. No, he didn't. Hmm. I must have missed that. Yeah. He paused some. But he certainly didn't deliver on what he promised. I wish he listened to Bernie. This is like when Biden and Harris were running and Trump and the Republicans made them seem so much cooler than they actually were. They kept calling them radical socialists. If only. And also they were literally making them themselves were clearly making statements and promises that then they just forgot about, didn't do. Right. Of course. Yeah. But but also these sorts of people, too, were like, you know framing them as these radical leftists. And it's like, don't threaten me with a good time, man. Yeah, exactly. Don't get my hopes up. Biden did it. And now Biden wants to eliminate billionaires. Wait, wait. He just said Biden did the Green New Deal? Yeah. What? No, he didn't. Apparently he did, according to Jesse Waters. And I really wish that Senator Sanders had picked up on this or pointed this out when that Chris Wallace. Yeah, that that clip that he showed of him. Senator Sanders said he's talking about going back to a tax policy from the time of President Eisenhower. Right. And so now they're framing that as like wildly leftist, you know, blah, blah, blah. Dude, Dwight Eisenhower was like a four-star military general Republican. So I guess it just speaks to how far the Overton window has shifted. Yeah. Yeah. Wanted the Green New Deal. Biden did it. Now here he's going to make a mistake. He's going to say Biden wants, but he's talking about Bernie. And now Biden wants to eliminate billionaires and steal their money and keep it, spend it on windmills. I think Biden's going to do it. Um, what is Charlie Hurt? I, I just also wanted to point out, and I'm sure that there's going to be some people online that would vehemently disagree with me, but the framing here about how giving your money to the government and the same government that is whatever in debt and this and that, it's like framing money as it pertains to the federal government the same way that money functions for you and I, when it it objectively doesn't. Right. And to be more accurate, like it's it's the government's money. Jesse Waters' name is not printed on those bills. It's the government's money. So they're basically just taking their money back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesse's neither the sharpest nor most honest crayon in the box, to speak. 
So that's that's the ugly. Now let's look at the bad. Let's take a look at the bad. It has a new piece in the Wall Street Journal titled Biden versus Trump in 2024. Don't be. He's talking about Peggy Noonan. So sure, Peggy writes this. Look at people's faces when you say, looks like it'll be Biden and Trump. Those faces tell you everything. The soft wince, the shake of the head, the sigh. I agree with those who say the problem isn't only Joe Biden's age, but the implication his age carries. That if he is reelected, there's a significant chance Kamala Harris will become president. On the Republican side, the great not Trump option, the consistent number two in the polls, has been deflating. It is too early to say Ron DeSantis' candidacy won't work, but it feels like it won't work. But life is surprising. Here's the real point of this column, Peggy writes. If it starts to seem clear that America is once again locked into a Trump-Biden race, I think the electorate is going to get frisky. I don't see people just accepting it. I see pushback and little rebellions. Um, so, Gene Robinson, uh, your reaction there and what that pushback and rebellion might look like, the, the fact of the matter is that at this point, they've got a lot of legal trouble out there for Donald Trump, but at this point, he is head and shoulders above the rest of the field, including Ron DeSantis, and nobody's going to make a real run on the other side of Joe Biden. Nobody's going to make a real run on the other side of Joe Biden. I mean, to the extent that that's true, as in nobody's getting coverage going after Biden, that's in part because you haven't had RFK or Marianne Williamson on your show. Right. It's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It, look, front runners don't always get their party's nominations and don't always become president. Uh, however, I don't think anybody's going to challenge President Biden. Uh, and Donald Trump is way ahead. And So what are RFK and Marianne doing? Right. And why is it like, well, we know why, but when they talk about the Republican primaries, they have no problem. I've never seen anybody omit Ron DeSantis from the conversation. I mean, to be fair, to play devil's advocate, he's higher profile, right? Because he's already a governor. Sure. But certainly people, I mean, he's not polling that well and people don't discount him because of that. And as you pointed out in the past, Brad, like Marianne Williamson polled at 10% in one poll, Bobby Kennedy at 19%. These same people who are either ignoring or dismissing them are the same ones who talked about how significant, you know, Mayor Pete was or Kamala Harris, and they were doing way worse. Yeah, or uh, Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar, yeah. Yeah. Again, it's just wild how things change in a relatively short amount of time, because I feel like not too terribly long ago, it was like common wisdom or just the rule of thumb. If your favorability was less than 50%, that was a big deal. That was like really big trouble. Yeah. Right now, I believe Biden's favorability is at what, like 38%, something like that? It's definitely under 50. Yeah, it's low. Way, way under 50. And it's just being treated as like a coronation, as like an inevitability. And I guess what really, look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy about it, but if the people were given, it was just an open and fair, and then they, honest to goodness, they were like, we want Biden again. Okay, I wouldn't like it, but okay. But this, where it's just so clear, the manufacturing and hiding or censoring of any dissent or challenge, it, it just, it's very upsetting. Well, we're not going to leave you on a down note. We're going to give you a nugget, a good, a good nugget. So as people probably know, we have some exciting news, which is that members of the Writers Guild of America, which represents more than 11,000 television and feature writers, are on strike. And according to Jacobin, in addition to standard issues like higher minimum compensation and increased contributions to health care and retirement funds, writers' priorities include standardizing residuals for feature writers, regardless of whether their work is released in theaters or on streaming curbing the use of the much-hated mini-rooms, applying contract minimums to comedy variety shows made for new media, and addressing the issue of artificial intelligence. So writer Adam Conover went on CNN, and here's what he had to say about the strike. This industry that say, look, times are changing. We are not making as much money as we once did. This is not the golden era of television, although some of us would argue the shows are great. Um, what do you say to them? 
So I'd point out the fact that David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, which is, you know, the parent company of the network I'm talking to you on right now, was paid $250 million last year, a quarter of a billion dollars. That's about the same level as what 10,000 writers are asking him to pay all of us collectively, all right? So I would say if you're being paid $250 million, Ted Sarandos made about $50 million last year. Uh, these companies are making enormous amounts of money. Their profits are going up. It's ridiculous for them to plead poverty when the writers who are making their shows, some of them are not able to pay their rent or their mortgages. I literally know writers who have had to go on assistance uh, because they have not been able to make their year. Uh, the, the, if, you, <laughs> if you look at these companies, they're making more money than ever. It's the people who make the shows for them that are making less. By the way, I have to add, so you understand what comes next. He was the creator of the show, Adam Ruins Everything. Okay. Adam Conover, thank you so much for coming on because you ruined everything. You may have just ruined my career, but I don't mind. Uh, appreciate you coming on. So that was a nice media appearance. I really liked the way he framed it. That was great. Yeah, we need more people like that stepping up. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. So that's, that was the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I have one more segment for you guys that I'm going to bring, which is a new segment called Don't Get My Hopes Up. So I got an email from the New Yorker Daily, and it said the limits of Joe Biden's call for press freedom. And I was so excited. And I was like, they're finally covering Julian Assange. I then clicked on it, and here's the article. The limits of Joe Biden's calls for press freedom. After decades of exposing corruption in Guatemala, the journalist Jose Ruben Zamora has been jailed. Why can't the U.S. help him? Now, I'm sure that he has a valid claim for freedom, but I think it's rich that the New Yorker hasn't asked why can't the U.S. release its own political prisoner, Julian Assange. And you know what's interesting, by the way, while Biden is silent on Julian Assange, I noticed this tweet from RFK. Instead of championing free speech, the U.S. actively persecutes journalists and whistleblowers. I'll pardon brave truth tellers like Julian Assange and investigate the corruption and crimes they expose. This isn't the Soviet Union. The America I love doesn't imprison dissidents. That's from RFK. Now let's see what Marianne Williamson, a longtime defender of Julian Assange, had to say. This is about the White House Correspondents' Dinner. She said, hard to take a dinner honoring press freedom seriously when the name Julian Assange isn't even mentioned. So it's things like this, by the way, I believe, that explains why Biden doesn't want to debate. Because imagine having two people on that stage normalizing the principle of free press, normalizing freedom of speech, normalizing not having political prisoners, or normalizing speaking out against having political prisoners. This is why they can't have this debate. Because when you have one person, let alone two people, making these comments, your hypocrisy is exposed. And that's what they are used to not having happen to them. And I don't know if you had seen this, Katie. I'm sorry, I don't have it at hand. But within the last couple of days, I believe it was reported on that during a recent interview or press briefing with Biden, it was caught like on camera. He had a piece of paper, I believe, that showed he had the names of each reporter, the questions that they were going to be asking him, and then the answers he was going to be giving him. I mean, basically just laying out, because in order for that to be possible, you would have to have coordination between the White House and all of the press there. But the point being, they were, I mean, not to mention making sure that he didn't forget someone's name or forget what he was supposed to say, they were able to control what was being asked, what the answers were going to be. And like you just said, and this is a really great point, I think, that if they were to have those debates, I mean, you're dealing with, you know, two people in, in RFK and Marianne Williamson that I can't see how they would be able to do that. Even if they wanted to. Even if they, right. They, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't plan exactly what the questions right. or what they were going to say and then th thus prepare Biden for what he would say in reply, and it would just be a train wreck for, for Biden. Right, exactly. But and, and we have a revolving door, which is made clear by, look, just look at Simone Sanders, who was Biden's campaign advisor. She now has a show. Then look at Jem Psaki. She now has a show on MSNBC, and she was his spokeswoman. So it's just so explicit. But anyway, guys, thank you for attending the good, bad, and the ugly, or the ugly, bad, and the good. Thank you, Brad, for joining and also, thank you for the Don't Get My Hopes Up, which may not be a regular segment, but it was it was fun while it lasted. I'm going to bring in our first guest. So excited to have her back on the show. 
Yumna Patel is a journalist based in the occupied West Bank. She is the Palestine news director at Mondo Weiss, a U.S.-based website that covers news and opinion on Israel, Palestine, and U.S. policy in the region. So welcome, Yumna. Hey, Katie. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. I want to ask you, I think to start off, I want to bring up some really actually very tragic news. The death of Sheikh Haider Adnan, the Palestinian political prisoner who just died Tuesday morning after an 87-day hunger strike. We actually have an image of him. This is him when he's healthy with some of his children. And then this is an image of him once he had started his hunger strike. What do people need to know about him? Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really glad that you brought up Khadr Adnan's case. What people need to know, I mean, there's a lot of things that people need to know about Khadr Adnan, one of which is before his death and now certainly after his death, he has become an icon of Palestinian resistance to Israeli oppression. I mean, Khadr Adnan was only 45 years old, and this was at least the 11th time that he had been arrested and imprisoned by the Israelis. Over the past 18 years, eight of those years, more or less, were spent behind bars. And what's really important to note about Khadr Adnan's story is that for much of his detention, including his most recent detention, over which he went on strike and he died over it, is his most recent detention was under policy called administrative detention, which is this policy that Israel uses almost exclusively against Palestinians to imprison people without charge or trial. So Khadr Adnan was in prison for almost three months. He's been on hunger strike for almost three months. He died as a result of this hunger strike, and he was never formally charged with a crime. He was never indicted. He never had his day in court. He was never put on trial. This thing that we talk about called due process was something that he was never afforded. And his case is definitely an exceptional case, but it's by no means a unique case. I mean, there are thousands of Palestinians over the years who have been imprisoned for months and even years under this policy of administrative detention. And currently there are dozens of Palestinians, including children, who are being imprisoned by Israeli authorities under this policy. And so what happened to Khadr Adnan, the fact that he had to starve himself to death in protest of this extremely inhumane policy, it's not something that should be taken lightly. And, you know, Israel essentially imprisoned him over his political affiliations because he was affiliated with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement, which Israel and the U.S. considered to be a terror group, though they could never actually prove or never had any concrete evidence that Khadr Adnan actually participated in any of the military decisions or the military wing of Islamic Jihad. It was all basically suspicions of his involvement and his political affiliations. So you essentially have a man who was imprisoned for a significant portion of his life simply over his political affiliations, and eventually he he was killed for it, and he, he starved to death for it. What were his demands? So his demands, I mean, first and foremost, were to end Israel's targeted harassment campaign against him, which had been ongoing for several decades, and end to the policy of administrative detention and imprisoning Palestinians without charge or trial, very you know simple demands, an end to his arbitrary arrest and detention. And also Khadr Adnan's wider demands over the years have been demands for uh, the rights of Palestinian prisoners. And overall for, you know, he's even in his death and his will, he's called for freedom and liberation for the Palestinian people. I mean, so yes, he was he was striking for his own well-being and his own freedom, but always within his strikes, this most recent one and over the years, um, he very much was striking for the rights of all Palestinians and for the freedoms of all Palestinians. And that's a message that he solidified in his in his final will and testament most recently in his death. And they are, the Israeli forces are holding his body. They're not giving his body to his family. Yeah. So the most recent, I mean, as far as I know, unless things have, have changed um, in the past, you know, hour or so, as far as we know, the Israeli government is still continuing to hold his body and is refusing to release it to his family for burial. And again, this seems like 
such an exceptionally cruel kind of policy. You know, you imprison someone without ever charging them or convicting them of anything. They go on hunger strike, they die, and then you refuse to release their body even for, you know, their family to to have a proper burial. But this is a very common policy and a very common tactic used by Israeli uh, by Israeli occupation forces. Um, it's one used against Palestinians who are accused of committing attacks against Israelis. And it's also used against Palestinian political prisoners who die in, in, in prison. Um, more often than not, is, Israeli authorities will hold the body of the prisoner um, to serve out their sentence, basically. If they die in the middle of a 20-year sentence, they might say, well, we're not going to release the body for another X amount of years until they've completed this, the sentence. In the case of Khadr Adnan, you know, he never actually had an allotted sentence, but they're still holding his body. Um, and this is, you know, very commonly understood as just another torture tactic for for the Palestinian people and for Palestinian families to continue to um, suppress any sort of, you know, resistance to to the Israeli occupation or to Israeli oppression. And so despite calls from the ICRC and other human rights organizations, Israel is still refusing to release his body. And it's important to know, finally, that for, for Muslims, um, the burials, the burial of Muslims is very sacred and there's a very, um, you know, strict process that people adhere to. And one of the tenets of Islamic burials is being able to bury your loved one at the, basically as fast and as soon as possible. Oftentimes people are buried within hours of the time that they, that they pass away. And so there's another added level of cruelty in this and that Israel is not only denying this family the ability to say goodbye to their loved one, but they're also denying their religious right to bury their loved one according to their religious practices. Right, which just adds another layer to it yeah. of what already is a tragic and infuriating story. Also, I'm reading at The Guardian, there's an article on him. It says, Dr. Lina Kadem Hassan, the chair of Physicians for Human Rights Israel, visited Adnan on 23 April, after which the organization issued an urgent call for the prisoner to be transferred to hospital for monitoring and emergency intervention. An Israeli court recently rejected two PHRI petitions demanding Adnan be transferred to a hospital and that his family be permitted to visit him. Quote, his cognitive function was good enough to talk to me, but he was very weak, losing consciousness regularly. He was clearly dying, she said. He said he wanted to live. It doesn't matter what medical colleagues thought about him or that he refused help. Their job is to save lives. The guidelines for dealing with hunger strikers are clear. He should have been taken to hospital after day 45. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Israel loves to pride itself in its, you know, humanitarianism and medical technology and and treatment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that happens a lot. I mean, this gross medical negligence that happens in the case of Palestinian prisoners. Again, this isn't a unique case. This is actually a tried and true policy of the Israeli authorities when it comes to Palestinian prisoners who are hunger striking in order to you know, secure their release from prison or to achieve a number of other demands. So in the case of Khadr Annan, in violation or in, you know, contravention of international norms or what should have been done, he wasn't transferred to a hospital. Despite the rapid deterioration of his of his physical health, he was kept inside the Israel, um, uh, a prison clinic, which is, you know, notoriously uh, let's say, which is notorious for not meeting the medical needs and not meeting the standards um, of medical care that is necessary for for sick prisoners and for hunger striking prisoners. So that's also why his family and largely for the Palestinian people, this is ex this case is exceptionally cruel in the sense that people aren't just taking this as oh you know he went on hunger strike and he died. Khadr Annan is being regarded as a martyr and someone who was killed. And some people are even saying he was executed, you know, by the Israeli, by the Israeli government, because, you know, it wasn't just, 
he went on hunger strike, he was given all the proper medical care, and he died. It was he went on hunger strike in protest of his arbitrary detention. He shouldn't have been in prison the first in the first place. He went on strike. And then on top of that, there was gross medical negligence and malpractice that happened that had a you know that directly correlated to his death. And on top of that, the rights of his family were also violated, you know, not being able to visit him, not being able to see him, and not being able to ensure that he was getting the care that he needed. It's awful. And I should also add, though, that he's not even the only person killed by Israeli forces or Israeli institutions this week. We also have, at least that I know of, 17-year-old Jabril Mohammed Syed Kamal. He was shot Monday. Uh, He was shot in the head with live ammunition in Akbat Jabbar refugee camp near Jericho in the West Bank. So there he is. And there were also people killed last week. Like, I just don't even have time to go through all the people killed, especially this year alone. Yeah, I mean, this year, I mean, every day, right? This is an everyday reality. Someone's killed somewhere. Over the past year, we've seen an exceptional increase in violence and the excessive use of, you know, lethal force against Palestinians in the West Bank. Last year, at the end of last year, we did a big piece for Mondo Weiss on all the Palestinians who had been killed um, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, the number that we came out, you know, there were a difference in numbers, but the number that we came out with, according to our documentation, was that at least 173 Palestinians had been killed in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem last year. And that was by Israeli soldier and settler violence. And the reason that, you know, people might have seen a lot of headlines, including our headlines last year, saying that a record number of people were killed was because last year we saw the highest number of Palestinians killed in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem over, you know, since the second intifada, basically. And Now, this year, we are on track to far surpass the already record-breaking numbers of last year. I mean, so far, we're right at the beginning of the fifth month of the year. We're not even halfway in the year, and more than 105 Palestinians have already been killed this year. Um, And so, yes, Khadr Annan and the teenager who was killed also in the Akbar Jabba refugee camp, they are not alone. They're one of many Palestinians who have already been, you know, more than 100 who have already been killed this year. And it's all part of this growing and, you know, worrying trend of the increase of lethal force and excessive force used against Palestinians by Israeli soldiers and also by Israeli settlers who are increasingly um, becoming more armed, more violent, and being emboldened by you know the right-wing fascist government that Israel currently has in power. So all of this is you know coming into play together to create a very unsafe situation for Palestinians on the ground who are living under Israeli military occupation. I wanted to show some videos and film that you had done. So let's start with a trailer for a video that you're working on now. Can you tell us about this trailer and the film that it's a trailer of? Yeah, so I believe the trailer that you're referring to is on the documentary that we did in the Janine refugee camp. So at the beginning of this year, on January 26th, Israel conducted a massive raid into the Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank, and they killed 10 Palestinians. It was one of the largest scale and deadliest, you know, single raids Um in the rest in the West Bank in in recent years. And so we went to the refugee camp after to find out what happened during the raid, during which two minors and also an elderly woman were killed. We went out to there to find out what happened, but also to take a look at the history of the Janine refugee camp and the the growth and the rise of armed resistance groups inside the Janine camp that are also inspiring the proliferation of more and more armed groups outside of Janine and, and throughout the West Bank. So that's kind of a, um, you know a brief synopsis of what this this documentary is about. <laughs> It was the bloodiest few hours the West Bank had seen in years. On the morning of January 26th, the Janine refugee camp was thrown into a war zone. 
10 Palestinians were killed in a single Israeli army raid. The military claimed it was targeting Palestinian fighters, but the residents of the camp say the military targeted everyone. So how has the response been to that? I mean, it depends on who you ask. I think overall the response to that documentary was overwhelmingly positive. I think people were really moved by the stories that we told. I mean, the Janine Refugee Camp has such a such a unique and interesting story when it comes to the larger Palestinian story. And as you saw in that trailer, um, one of our standout interviews was speaking to an armed fighter in the camp. And so people were kind of really shocked by that interview. Um, but people were also surprised because I think I think some of the shock and surprise came from the fact that people are so used to seeing these images of like masked Palestinian gunmen, but they never have a name, they never have a face, they never have a voice either. It's always sort of, you know, a Western media or mainstream media or even Israeli military commentary on who these people are and what they stand for and what they represent. So we actually spoke to them and heard it directly from them. It's like, okay, what are you doing? What do you stand for? What are you trying to achieve? And so people, I think, were kind of, you know, shocked that they were not used to actually hearing that perspective. Um, And so overwhelmingly, it was a positive response. And then, of course, you get, you know, negative responses from people who just in general have a negative thing to say about all of our work, which is, you know, people, people take issue with Palestinians telling their own stories and, you know, speaking about their reality in their own words. A lot of the times we like to do, you know, the, the, you know, mainstream media and also people who consume that media would much prefer that we have sort of more palatable, um, you know, voices telling Palestinian stories for them. So, you know, people accuse us of whether it's, you know, we've run the gamut of, you know, being accused of being anti-Semites to glorifying terrorism and all these other things. But in reality, um, we're just letting Palestinians tell their stories. And I think that's ma- that makes people uncomfortable. Were you scared to meet with this armed person? I mean, I wasn't scared at all because, you know, it, it was definitely, I mean, it, it's not the most, it's not the easiest like environment to conduct an interview when you're like speaking to someone uh, with a weapon, but it, I wasn't scared. I mean, it was, it was definitely like a process to try to get that interview arranged and be able to meet these guys. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, they were just they, these were just young guys who were eager to actually speak to us and tell their stories. And so, you know, once we were actually there and once we were actually talking, you know, in that moment, it wasn't actually scary. What's actually scary is thinking of, oh, how are, are we going to be targeted like by the Israelis or am I going to be questioned about this like by Israeli intelligence on my way back into the country about like this interview and that sort of thing. Like those are where the fears arise of like how is, you know, what's the fallout going to be of like doing an interview like this from, you know, Israeli security and intelligence and whoever, you know, doesn't want us to be speaking to people like this. So how did you prove, I mean, I don't know how much you can reveal, but how were you able to go about even having this person trust you or approaching this person? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much I I can and should reveal, but uh, I mean, for us, we definitely, our crew definitely relied on some really amazing fixers who had, you know, they had built up their own sort of special relationships um, and building trust with these groups. And so we definitely relied on our fixers for, you know, for arranging a lot of those interviews in Janine. And naturally so, because we were going in 
literally hours after a number of young men from this same armed group were targeted in like a targeted assassination raid by the Israeli forces. And we went in at a time where like over the past year, these groups and these young men have increasingly become the targets of these kinds of raids um, where they're you know, they're on high alert all the time. And so it's definitely not easy, like, to get them to talk to you and to get them to trust you. So we definitely relied on, like, our, our really great fixers there at the time. Then also, um, you know, we were forthcoming about who we are, like, our work. Um, and I think that they could see that, you know, our track record at Mondawais is one that's not, like, skewing or misquoting or misrepresenting the words of Palestinians. It wasn't like a gotcha type of thing. So I, I think that they sense that as well. And what kind of treatment do you face as someone who covers this issue? Do you face obstacles as someone covering this? Obviously you're American, but as we saw with Shireen Abu Akleh, that only goes so far. Right. I mean, there's like baseline risks that come with being a journalist in Palestine. Obviously, those risks increase exponentially if you're Palestinian. There's a layer of privilege that comes with being a foreign journalist, an American journalist. But like you said, as we saw in the case of Shireen, and as we've seen in the case of so many other journalists that have been targeted and even killed by Israeli forces over the years, that's not always a guarantee. I mean, we've faced a lot of similar obstacles over the years of, you know, getting targeted at protests getting stopped and detained. I mean, I think it was last year when we were doing our, we did a documentary about uh, Masafir Yatta and the ongoing campaign by the Israeli military and the Supreme Court to try to uh, mass, to, to commit a mass expulsion of the Palestinian community there. And when we were there, our crew was detained for several hours by the Israeli military. They tried to take our cameras and our, you know, memory cards and that sort of thing. Um, eventually we got out of it because some Israeli activists intervened. Um, but, you know, we, we face that kind of thing all the time. For me personally, a lot of the pushback that I get or a lot of the obstacles that I face are when it comes to like my visa and me actually being there. So that's something that I've had a lot of trouble with over the years. We've had to go to court. We've had to hire lawyers um, just for me to be able to even be able to be there. Um, and there's always this fear crossing in, um, you know, every time I go, I'm, you know, detained for several hours. I'm questioned, interrogated by different like intelligence and army officials, um, about my work, what I do, my political affiliations, you know, what I've even once I've been asked, like what I thought about Trump and, um, and his policies and, and that sort of thing. So, um, that's a, a lot of, you know, that's, um, more of the like the more difficult things that I personally have to face is like when crossing in the the detentions and interrogations and also the very real possibility that I could get turned back. Before you leave, and thank you, you've been so generous with your time and I know how busy you are, but let's show a very short film that you made and don't set this up. Let's just have people watch it. Okay. <laughs> and you can explain it after they see it. <laughs> yeah, my mom hates it when I do this. <laughs> I can't blame her. <laughs> Habibti, I've been thinking about this for a while. I think it's time to tell them. Tell them about what? About me and you. That we're together. Oh. Look, babe. I know, I know it's all happening so fast, but they have to know. I mean, I guess you're right, but do you think they'll approve? I hope so. Inshallah. Hi, Emily. Sahibti. Amerikaniye. Ta'ina ba'ad wa'at ma kanat. طوع معلمة إنجليزي <تصفيق> أنا حاب أكون معها وإحنا كتير بنحب بعض بس عارفين إنه إذا بدنا يكون إلنا مستقبل مع بعض لازم نخبركم بالأول إحكي لي كديش صغلكم مع بعض هون بالزبط 
What are we going to tell your parents? I if they slow down. It's too soon for this. So, do you want to explain what made you make that film? Yeah, so that film was basically in response to these new procedures and laws that went into effect in October of last year, basically by the Israeli government agency that operates in the occupied West Bank. Um, And it was a 92-page list of new rules and regulations on the entry of foreigners into the West Bank. And it one facet of this was um, foreigners who are in romantic relationships with Palestinians. And earlier iterations of this law, not the one that went into effect, but earlier iterations even stated that if you were a foreigner and you entered into a relationship with Palestinian, you had to let the Israeli Ministry of Defense know within 30 days of the start of the relationship or else you would be ineligible for like a future visa if your relationship were to ever like progress into like an engagement or marriage. So, I mean, the whole thing, that that part of the, you know, law was eventually scrapped after a lot of backlash, but the overarching um, sort of law remained, which was a tightening of control over Palestinian relationships and, you know, needing to declare your relationship to the government if you wanted to be eligible in the future for like residency visa or a spousal visa, visa, which are few and far, you know, and very hard to come by in in any case. Um, But yeah, so, but this law also related to, um, you know, Palestinian Americans or foreign, you know, foreign passport holders who have family in the West Bank. It related to uh, professors, visiting professors from international institutions, visiting students, uh, humanitarian aid workers. Uh, Basically, it was this, you know, laundry list of rules and regulations um, intended to essentially make it as hard as possible for foreigners that fit into all these different categories to enter the West Bank, visit Palestinians in West Bank, reside in the West Bank for an extended period of time. And what we really wanted to highlight, I mean, was the ridiculousness of it all that, you know, your relationship or like this very intimate part of your life is, you know, this shouldn't be the business of the Israeli government. Um, But we particularly wanted to highlight, you know, the apartheid of it all, which we mentioned at the end, is that if I were to go to the West Bank and enter into a relationship with a Jewish Israeli who's living in a settlement illegally in the West Bank on Palestinian land, none of these lo- none of these rules or laws would apply to me. It would only apply if I'm in a relationship um, with a Palestinian. So it's just totally absurd. And so we wanted to find a way to highlight that absurdity, which is why we decided to go with like a short satirical film. Well, Yumna, it was great, and all your work is great. I really encourage people to follow you and your work on Mondo Weiss, and please come back. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And that was Yumna Patel of Mondo Weiss. Really great to have her again. So happy that she was able to come on live because she's usually in Bethlehem, but she's in the States for a bit. So now I'm bringing on major friend of show, Miko Pellet. He is an Israeli-American activist, speaker, and author, he's the author of The General Sun, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Miko, welcome. Thanks. Good to be with you again. Thanks, of course. Thanks for coming back. So there's so much to talk about with you, but let's talk about, to start off, what the protest movement in Israel is like right now. There are a lot of headlines about things being unprecedented, how people are out in the streets, Netanyahu's really being challenged. We've never seen this before. What were people out in the streets about? Well, that's a really good question. Um, there are several issues. Uh, the, the biggest issue is the fact that Netanyahu's new government, the current Netanyahu government, is trying to pass legislation that will expand the apartheid uh, and uh, erode the rights and the privileges of Israeli Jews. And that's the problem. In other words, none of this really touches on the Palestinian issue. None of this touches on the on the apartheid regime, only in as much as it touches the lives of the privileged Israeli Jews. And there's a real concern. I mean, he wants to, he wants to completely erase the the separation of powers 
So the judiciary, now as it is really, realistically, there are only two powers. There's no three, three powers like in the U.S. There's only two because it's a parliamentary system. So the parliament, the, the legislature, and the executive branch are really connected very, very tightly. One relies on the other completely. But there is a separation. There was separation between that and the judiciary, and he wants to, he and his government, want to create a reality where the judiciary is also controlled by the government. And the selection of judges is controlled by the government. And so, and the rights of the of the Supreme Court or the High Court um, to, you know, uh, strike down laws that are deemed unconstitutional, that is going to be erased. So these are things that, are, that, that make it very, very dangerous if you're an Israeli citizen living in what you think is a democracy, because for Israeli Jews, it is a democracy. Um, and that's what it's about. That's what, I mean, that's, that's one part of it. The other part of it is that the Israelis that did not vote for Netanyahu and for that Netanyahu block of these rabid, radical um, fascists who are now in the coalition with government, they don't like these new faces. They don't want these faces that are, that seem to be unstates-like, unstatesman-like, you know? These are thugs. These are gangsters who rose in the streets and rather than go to like conventional crime and gangs, they ended up in, this, in these fascist crime gangs who are obsessed with killing and destroying and terrorizing Palestinians. And Israelis don't like that. So they can live with the apartheid regime as long as the face is the face of somebody who is um, more acceptable to them. Gantz and Lapid and these others who are in, in the opposition to Netanyahu. So those really are the two are the are are, are the two issues that that the Israeli uh, Israelis are uh, up in arms about. It's almost like Trumpian versus typical Republican, right? The Ben Gavir versus Netanyahu. Well, it's Ben Gavir and Netanyahu versus the rest of the forty five percent or forty percent of Israelis that didn't vote for that block. Um, that's that's really the reality because you know Netanyahu brought Ben Gvir and Ben Gvir is is not the only one that he brings in the whole team of of these racist fascist um, gangsters and so the the makeup of the Israeli government is is scary and at the same time Ben Gvir is the most popular politician in Israel in Israel at the same time Israelis are obsessed obsessed by him he's the in terms of being invited to talk shows and news shows and commentary, his face is, it's almost the, like the obsession the press used to have here with Trump before, before he was elected. It's a very similar thing. So this is the reality, you know, it's, it's, this, it's this one monstrosity versus the other, but as is the privileges of Israelis are now, are now being threatened. And so they're going from an apartheid where Israeli Jews had rights to an apartheid where even Israeli Jews are going to be subjected to a fascist regime, and they're standing up against that. They don't want that. Why and how is Israel fascist? Well, it's not fascist yet for Israeli Jews, because there is some separation of powers. There is the there is to a large degree the rule of law when it comes to again when it comes to Israeli Jewish uh, citizens, and so it's not yet. But it is an apartheid regime because the laws that govern the lives of Israelis are not the same right. as the laws. And it's not only laws, it's laws and policies. It's not only law. Some things are not a law, but they're a policy. And some things are not a law or a policy, but they're just the way things are done. There's no law that says the Palestinian can't live in his Jewish neighborhood in Tel Aviv, in northern Tel Aviv. There's no law that says it. Uh, but there are laws that say, especially the, the, the nation-state law, that communities can reject someone if they feel that their presence is going to be a threat to the nature of the community. So it's, a, it's an apartheid regime, but for Israeli Jews up to this point, it was, uh, it, it was a democracy. Right. I mean, it seems like it's fascist for, it's a fascist treatment of Palestinians, right? So Israeli Jews may not be living under fascism, but Palestinians certainly are living under a you know, it's interesting. I'm look, just going to the Webster, Merriam-Webster definition yeah, of fascism. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think looking for a definition, a perfect definition is hard. But I mean, if we can describe it, what it is, I don't think we need, you know, to, to, to you know, pinpoint a particular. It's an apartheid regime, which and, and apartheid is a crime against humanity. 
Right, but I actually think there is more from fascism in it because it's a political philosophy movement or regime that exalts nation and often race above the individual. Oh, without any doubt, without question. Yes, of course, without without any question. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which is always just so fascinating and, and like despicable because Israel, of course, prides itself on its alleged rule of law and, and respect for democracy and rules-based order. And then they have uh, this, I mean, obviously I, this is something you know and, and my viewers know too, but this dual system, this apartheid system, uh, which they somehow try to pretend is compatible with democracy. Well, they don't, they don't really pretend. What they did was, because the segregation is so effective, you can visit the country and think that everything's fine. So segregated, so effectively, even though it's a small country. And so, um, and then that's why American politicians can travel, you know, can travel there, the, you know, delegate, the congressional delegation and the Speaker of the House and, you know, Ron DeSantis and anybody else, you know, all these other governors and people want to be president, visit. And they can come out and just say, this is a miracle. I mean, they made the desert bloom. And, you know, the EU commissioner just uh, put out a statement for Israel's uh, Independence Day. And they can say all these things. And if you only look at one part of it, then it, that's what it looks like. Oh, yeah. What's her name? Ursula? I also want to ask you um, about an interaction that you had recently with Rabbi Leo D. We're going to show that clip because you made a video about it but can you set up who he is yeah so what was it uh i think it was april 14th or around that time mid-april that uh two girls and a mother were shot and killed uh in the west bank two settlers there was settler settler family part of a settler family and the father came out the father's name was leo d and the father came out um after this happened and he was being interviewed and he made a very bold and um, in a way impressive statement, I suppose, talking about right and wrong and talking about, you know, contributing, contributing to world peace and contributing to goodness in the world. You know, he wears the Yarmulke and they call him a rabbi. I don't know if he's a rabbi, but I guess they call him a rabbi. Perhaps he's a rabbi and, um, and on and on and values and so forth. And then talked about the, the evil of this, uh, of the deed that was done to his family. Now, I, I can't imagine the kind of horrifying pain he must be going through. So, I mean, that has to be made clear, of course, but he came out preaching to Palestinians basically about good and evil. Now, this man about 10 years ago decided to take his family. They're, they're, they're English. They came from the UK not only did they immigrate to Israel, which is which is horrifying enough, not only are they Zionists, which is horrifying enough, but they chose to live in Efrat, which is a settlement in the West Bank. It's just between Bethlehem and, and Hebron, the southern part of the, Hebron, of the West Bank, in one of the most horrifically violent, violent towards Palestinians, uh, settlements. And um, he made a choice that is horrifying choice. He made a choice to participate in a bloody brutal campaign of ethnic cleansing of, and genocide of Palestinians. And he is preaching to the world about being good and making the right choices and world peace. And I just couldn't take it. And, you know, trying to confront a father who just lost his wife and two daughters is really a hard thing to do. So I had to think long and hard. But I thought it was wrong to let him just go ahead and keep preaching. And then he got interviews across the board. He was interviewed everywhere. And all the biggest, you know, dignitaries came to visit him and so forth. And uh, and then he said, you know, I love my neighbors. I love the Pal my Palestinian neighbors. Well, if you love your Palestinian neighbors, would you give them their home back and their land back? Would you allow them to buy an apartment and live in Efrat in the settlement? Of course not. So he loves his neighbors as long as they remain within this racist context of, of, of the Zionist entity in Palestine. So anyway, so I came out with this video, a short one, and then I came out later on with a second one, a longer one, because I don't think that um, I don't think it's okay for somebody to preach to Palestinians. You cannot disconnect what happened to him, the tragedy that had, hap had happened to his family, with the choices that he made. You cannot disconnect it. It's a political statement that he made. It's a statement of values, and it's he has no right to preach to anyone but himself.
And he says how proud he is that he came to Israel and he's so happy that he came, even now, even with this terrible price that he paid. Well, you know, I, I just thought it was it was important to stand up and, and, and speak up and say something. And so I did. We have the video, actually. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.